Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you who are guests, a special welcome to you. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, and it's been a great week of ministry for our students. So at about 3.30 this morning, our team from Haiti returned great reports of them serving kids with our partners down their mission of hope. And then uh, I know one of the things they did is they packed enough meals to feed like 8,000 people. So that was awesome, one of the things that they do. Mission of Hope, one of our international partners down in Haiti, and their goal is to reach everyone in Haiti with the good news of Jesus Christ, sharing that, living that message out, and we were able to partner with them and learn a lot from them. And then we sent early this morning, so as they were coming back at 3.30, the team up north met at 4.30 in the morning, and 25 of our students and leaders had headed off to LA. I think they're still probably en route. And uh, we're excited for a week that they have as they are partnering with Next Step Ministries and then with some of the rescue missions down in the heart of LA, Skid Row. Gonna be working with a lot of the homeless people down there, so remember them in our prayers. So if you weren't here last week, we kicked off our new series on the Apostles' Creed. Credo up on the screen, the logo, just reminds us of the first two words Uh, as it's found in that Latin text of the Apostles' Creed. It means, I believe. So the reason we're getting into the creed is because we want to grow deeper in our faith. That's what this chapter in our life is as a church, being grounded in Christ for the good of the world. And so as we kind of pursue this and start in earnest today, last week kind of being the introduction, what we're doing is taking the affirmations of the creed and connecting them to the truth in God's word then to our own hearts that we would love God more and be better equipped to serve this world that he's called us to serve. So we started talking about faith. And what we said is faith is not a blind leap in the dark as if there's no evidence for our faith. It's not just mere intellectual assent as if you don't, it doesn't really make a difference in how you live your life. And it's not rooted in our emotions. Rather, if you think of one word to kind of be the synonym for faith, think of trust. It's this kind of reliant commitment. And when the Bible talks about to believe, it it actually has the force of to believe into. And so faith always has an object, and our faith is only as good as its object. The object of a Christian's faith is in God and how he's revealed himself to us perfectly in his son, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. We talked about faith isn't something we muster up, it's a gift. And we get the gift of faith in, a, in close proximity to God's word. So as we hear God's word and we're understanding God's word, faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Why would we place our trust in Christ? Because it's a gift, but that gift is connected to God revealing himself so that we know that he's a trustworthy God, the one who sent his own son for you and me that we might have life. So today we come to the first full line. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It's no surprise we live in a country, though the percentages are dropping, that the majority of people believe in God. The question is, what kind of God do they believe in? Who is this God that you believe in? Does it square with the Bible? Why does it matter that it squares with the Bible? Because the Bible's premise is that this is a word from God about God. That he's actually revealing himself, not just in creation, where we can clearly see, Romans 1 tells us, his divine nature, his eternal power. But we, we know about God 
through his son, Jesus Christ. And so does, does our understanding of God square with who God has revealed himself to be in the scriptures? So grab a Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 32, end of the book. And Deuteronomy just means second law. It's the second giving of the law. The first time the law was given was back in Exodus 19 and 20 on Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments where God says, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. So here's where we're at in the history of Israel. Forty years before, God rescued them from slavery and blew them out, so to speak, of Egypt. And he freed them from Pharaoh, right? He brought them into the wilderness out of Egypt to make this covenant relationship. You be my people. This is what it looks like. I'm going to be your God. This is what it looks like. They disobeyed. They turned right away to idols like that golden calf. And so they've been wandering around for 40 years. The generation who didn't trust God to go into the promised land, they've all died except for the two spies that gave the faithful report, Joshua and Caleb. Moses is about to die. He can't go in the land because he was disobedient. And he's handing off the baton, so to speak, to Joshua. And before he goes, God says, I want you to give a final message to my people. And Moses gives this message through what is a song. And it's Deuteronomy 32. And this song is all about reminding God's people of who God is, what he's done in their life, his faithfulness, who they are, who they were when God loved them and chose them as a people, and that he's a faithful God, so don't turn away from him to idols, which God knows that's going to happen. And so he's warning them, and he's calling them back to trust in this faithful God who reveals himself in verse 6 as their father and as their creator. That's why we're looking at it, because it lines up with the cadence of that first line, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So we read in verse one, these words. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, you earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. So he's gonna give this warning and he just calls heaven and earth to bear witness to what he's saying because they're gonna forget And they'll always say, nope, nope, no, actually, God said it through his prophet Moses. We remember, okay? So he's calling metaphorically heaven and earth to stand as witnesses to what he's about to say. And then he pleads with the people. He says, man, I hope that you will be like this tender plant, like this little blade of grass that's growing. And as the rains come, you just lap it up. You take it in that you might learn and grow. That's like what's been happening this week here in Madison, right? It's just, it's just it the crops. It was just soaking it all in that they would grow. Then he reminds them who this God is, who is their father and their maker. Verse three, I'll proclaim the name of the Lord. When, it, when, when the Bible talks about the name of the Lord, it's talking about the character of God. All of God's character is consumed under that word, the name. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. They're right, they're fair. He's a faithful God who does no wrong, upright, and just is he. 
So God's character is the source of his praise, and he reminds his people who God is. He's your rock. He, he's your safe place, your fortress. He is your solid foundation, this God. He is perfect in all he does. He is just. He does no wrong. Everything he does is right and fair and good and perfect. He goes on in verse 5. He says, that's not who we are. That's not who you've been. He reminds them who they are. Verse 5, they're corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? So you've, you've had things get warped, right? When something's warped, it's usually there's some moisture that's come in, and whatever it is has lost its what? It lost its shape, right? You've lost your shape. You, you were created, you were formed, you were shaped to be children of God. You're no longer children of God. You're rejecting God's rule in your life. You're, not, you're no longer in line with God and his purposes. You're crooked. You're off the mark here. Back at the end of chapter 31, he describes God's people. Look at verse 27. Rebellious, stiff-necked is just a way of saying stubborn, won't be led, won't follow God. He talks about them in verse 29 being utterly corrupt, right? He says, this is who you've been. This is who you've been. As you turned away from God to idols. So he says this in verse 6 at the end. Is he not your father? Here it is. Your creator who made you and formed you. Now what's interesting here, when, when Moses in this song is reminding them of God being their father, he's not taking him back to Genesis 1 when he formed Adam out of the dust and Eve from his rib. He's not going back to creation. And the Bible will assert that we all find our being in God. We're, we're all created in his image by God, for God. He's not referencing that. He's actually referencing when God saved them and when he rescued them. And we note that, that they have their life from him physical, spiritual, that he alone is to be trusted, that he desires and deserves our allegiance, not some idol carved out of wood or stone. So he goes and starts reminding them of what he did and what they were like when he found them and rescued them. Verse seven, remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father. He'll tell you. Your elders, they'll explain it to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. That's like, what, what did he just say? What he's saying in Jordan is this. Hey, when God divvied up all the people, and when he looked over all the people, he picked you, Israel, as his chosen possession. You are the apple of his eye, he's going to say. You are his treasured possession. You are his chosen one, his special people. And he's rescued his people for a relationship, and it's all out of grace. He didn't choose them, or he didn't choose us, because they or we are great. It's not, it's not like, like God knows how to pick a winner. And he looked over all the nations and all the people groups. And he said, look at that band of people, these descendants of Abe. 
Abraham. Man, they are a mighty people. They are taking over the earth. And I am hitching my wagon with those people because they are awesome. They are making a way in this world. <laughs> no, listen to what he says, where they were when he set his affections on them. You see it on the slide, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. See, this is, we gotta catch up with this. This is the uniqueness of our faith. That, that the scriptures say it is by grace, it's a free gift of God that we don't deserve, that we are saved through faith. And this, our salvation, the grace of God that we receive, faith in God that we place in him, is a gift from God. It's not a result of works that no one should boast. And we get so goofed up because if we're honest, so much of our response to anything and anyone is conditioned. So if the person is being a jerk, we just, we just kind of recalibrate to their jerkedness, if that's such a word. It's not. <laughs> right? So if someone's a good friend, man, we move towards that. With all, if, they're, if they're like a creep friend and we find out they're really not a friend, we go, I don't need you. We drop them. So that, that's how, so we feel like, well, that must be how it works with God. And when you think about it, that's how religions work. Religions say, we've got to live a certain way so that we measure up to God. That's not what God is revealing himself as, is this petty, conditional, loving God. No, he loves us unconditionally. He chose them because he loved them, not because, wow, they were just this great, mighty people. He chose you and me out of his grace, not based on what we've done or not. So we don't bring this religious portfolio. Look, God, I'm doing the work and I'm doing good work. Don't you think? I'm doing a lot better than John, Billy, and Sue. Doesn't that count? It's, he, he chooses us out of his love. And he loves us because he chose to love us. So he reminds them of this grace and reminding them, Moses does in the song, oh, hey, let's just remember where you were when God set his affections and made you his people. Verse 10, you were in a desert land. He found him, speaking about Israel. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him because you know what? If you're exposed in a barren wasteland, in a desert to the elements, you don't live very long. He shielded him. He cared for him. He guarded, he protected him as the apple of his eye, like his treasured possession. The apple of the eye is this whole expression that goes back to, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but you get so close to someone that you look in their eye and their pupil, you can see your reflection. The apple of the eye is this image that you see. And so you're, 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 you have such a close relationship because he's moved towards you that you're, you're the apple, you're his treasured possession like an eagle that stirs its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. That's how God's cared for you. The Lord alone led him, verse 12. No foreign God was with him. I'm the one who took you out of Egypt, God, saying, 
through Moses' song. There wasn't a God. The golden calf didn't lead you out. Now, any, the, the God of the sun God, Ray, the Egyptian God, he didn't lead you out. I led you out in the dark at night, the pillar of fire at night, the cloud during the day. It was me who made a way through the Red Sea. It's me who's gonna make a way through the Jordan River, and I'm gonna lead you in this promised land. And he's talking about what's gonna happen in the past tense. The Bible will do this, and it gets confusing. Like you get to verse 13, you go, what's he talking about? Because it sounds like the stuff that describes the land, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey, but they're not there yet. They're still waiting to get in there. So when the Bible talks about the future, sometimes it uses the past tense. It's called this prophetic tense where it's so sure that it's gonna happen, they describe it as if it's already happened, okay? So listen to what he says, verse 13. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruits of the field. He's talking about moving into the promised land. He nursed him with honey from the rock. Remember, a land flowing with milk and honey, with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from the herd and the flock, and with fat lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan, and the finest kernels of wheat. You drank foaming blood of the grape. He's saying, look, he loves you because he loved you. He chose you because he loved you. You, you, were, you were ready to die. You were exposed. You were in slavery, and God led you out. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an idol. Remember that. Rehearse the history. It was God's doing. And he's the one who's gonna bring you in this promised land. And just as I warned you before in chapter six and eight of Deuteronomy, be careful because in the time of success and prosperity, in the land of abundance and affluence, it is easy to forget God. And you just didn't hear what I said. In the land of abundance, where there is affluence, where prosperity abounds. Now look, we all know, prosperity doesn't abound for everybody. But most of us in this room, that's the world we live in. And the continued warning is, it is so easy to forget God and to turn to other idols that we would trust in. And for us, it's not a golden calf, but gold's not far, is it? Gold's not far from what we trust. So when you think about fatherhood, think about protection and provision. But for a bunch of us listening, it's like, but that's the problem. That's not my dad. He didn't protect me. He abused me. He, he said things verbally. This is always tearing me down. His... His force was excessive, physical abuse, some of us sexual abuse from our dad. Provide, he walked out on us. I haven't seen him. I don't know who he is. So when we have those experiences, what happens is there's so much emotional freight to that and it's easy then for us to allow our earthly experience with a dad define how we think about the father. So catch up with this. When God reveals himself, it, he's using language of approximation because he's God and we're not God. He's spirit and we are material. Not all of us is material, but most of our, what we're tuned into is, is we, we have physical beings so when he's revealing himself, he has to use his language of accommodation so we kind of get what he's like, kind of get what he's like. Because guys, we're gonna spend, listen to this, eternity in heaven 
Always learning more about God. And I know, it just like blows the circuitry of my mind, this whole thing about eternity. But here's the deal. We're never gonna get like, like a million years through and go, wow, that, really? God, you are awesome. Okay, we got it now. Close the book. We got all of God figured out. I mean, it took us a long time, a million years, but we got it now. We're never gonna plummet. We are never, ever gonna plummet. And so he's just using language of accommodation to help us know this is a little bit what God's like. But it's not saying God's a man or that he's male and he's not female. In fact, Jesus will use the maternal image when he says, oh, Jerusalem. He's not talking about the city buildings and the bricks. He's talking about the people. Oh, that I could have gathered you in my, I love you. My affection is for you. Like Like a mother hen, her chicks, how I wanted to gather you, protect you, and love you and hold you close. So here's the deal. We got a dad who's not a protector, not a provider. Every memory, maybe most of our memories, maybe some of our memories, really hard. And we go, I can't catch up with God as a father. Well, here's the deal. The father God who's existed through all eternity, the first father, is the one who sets the bar. This is what we know about what a father's to be like not the other way around. You get it? But it's hard, isn't it? But here's what I want you to know. When God revealed himself to you and me as a father, said he wanted a relationship with us. He's your father. He's your maker. And then when God is your father, here's what we know. We are loved and we belong to the maker of heaven and earth. So, Notice that the creed affirms that he's the Father Almighty. Our Father is all-powerful. That does not mean he can do anything because God can't act contrary to his nature. He can't be unloving. He can't be unfair. He can't be inconsistent. He can't be unfaithful, impatient, right? He can't act against what is contrary to his nature and... He can't do anything that is self-contradictory. Like, so can, if God can do anything, can he, can he create a square circle? No, that's nonsense. He does everything he pleases to do, the scriptures say. And what he pleases to do is our almighty father is remind us that his power is always wrapped in his love and his power not only creates, but he redeems He protects, he provides, he cares, he works against evil, he holds this world together. It's not limited, his power, by our free choices, nor is it limited by evil. You go, well, if God is God, why doesn't he do something about evil and get rid of evil? Well, that's the storyline of the Bible. God created a world where the possibility of evil could exist, but he promises a world where evil will never exist. And to get there, his son had to die on the cross to begin the work of bringing all things back to their rightful place. So there's a lot to think about when it comes to God the Father. And when I think about being a dad, so I've got five kids, what I, what I know is I love my kids, and when they were growing up, there wasn't anything I wouldn't do to try and protect my kids and provide for them. But what we find out is our 
love as a dad, our love as a mom is limited. So here's my story. We love skiing. Lori and I met, and one of our first dates was skiing, and I fell in love with her on the slopes. She was, she was godly, she was gorgeous, and she could ski. That was like the trifecta for me. <laughs> so we wanted to be a skiing family, and so I would teach the kids like early on to ski, and it would always start like this. I'd get these little skis, and I'd always have the kids inside of my legs like this, and I'd have my poles right here, and they would just hang out on my poles. And we, I just teach them how to do the snow plow and where to put their weight and stuff like that. And we'd start on the bunny hill, and we'd get to a little bit, you know, a green hill, and teaching them about the importance of, you know, making the, the turn so you're always skiing under control. And then there's that time where you just you got to let them go. So I'll never forget it. We were up in Minnesota visiting family, and we took them to Afton Alps, and I'm on this green hill. Trust me, I wasn't being a bad dad. This wasn't a blue. This wasn't a black. It was just a gentle green, a little bigger than the bunny hill. And I've been teaching Claire. I go, girl, you are ready to go. So I let her go. And like, she forgot what I said about turning. So she's like, and I'm going, ah, this isn't good. And I'm trying to chase her down. And I can't catch her because there's just not enough vertical drop. So I'm yelling as I'm saying, this is not gonna end good. This is not gonna end well at all. I'm saying, fall down, fall down. I'm screaming, Claire, fall down, fall down. She's like, she can't hear anything. She's like, <laughs> like this. And it, don't ask me why someone would do this. But at the bottom of the hill near, well, I, I know why they did it, because they thought crashing into wood would be better than crashing into metal. So where the chairlift thing was, they, they had a wood fence. And all of a sudden, Clary's like going straight, decided, you know, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to run into the lodge. I'm just going to start turning here. And she's like going for the fence. And I'm just going, Claire, fall down. I want to do everything to protect her. And what does she do? Face plant into the fence. Ugh. Our God is an almighty father. And when you're thinking about God's power, always think about it connected to he's your dad who loves you, who never goes, Claire, I am so sorry. I wanted so desperately to protect you from that, and I could. There, there isn't that. God is our almighty Father who loves you and me. Now, this Father, though, is the maker of heaven and earth. And it's really important that our view of God has symmetry, that it has balance, that we're well-rounded in our understanding of who God is. He is this intimate, loving Father, but He's Almighty God. He's the one who made heaven and earth. So the Bible starts out with that, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we are told in the Scriptures is that he made everything out of nothing. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. So there's this phrase theologians will, will use. He created ex nihilo, out of nothing. It's not like God decided, hey, I'm gonna build a universe. Man, I hope there's a really big, big Home Depot around that I can get my stuff because I got a big building project. He started with nothing. 
So when we create, we start with something. All right, so here's my illustration. So um, a couple years ago, I was hiking around our place in Door County, and I saw this, this tree, this maple tree, that was down. And I kept walking by it, and no one was cutting it up, and I realized, oh, it's, it's just going to lay there in the woods. And I noticed it had these tumors, these burls. And I've never done it, but I've seen some, and I thought, man, it would be really cool to work with a burl and see what you could do. So I, I, I cut off this piece of wood, and I made this bowl. I got my ankle grinder out. I got the special bit, and I started carving it out, and I'm sanding it, and, and I lacquered it. So when you and I create, and, and as people create in the image of God, whatever it is we're creating, we start with stuff, not God. He existed before stuff. He made stuff to create stuff. We have to have stuff to create something. Now, there's no confusion, is there, that this bull is not me, right? Is anybody confused? Like, you're not gonna take this home and say, man, I, that was a good talk. I want, I want another talk this week. Can I, will this work? No, you're not confused. But we get confused sometimes with God's relationship to creation. So pantheism says everything, God is in creation and everything in creation because he made it is God. So I can worship that tree because God is that tree. That's pantheism. The Bible says God existed before creation, outside of creation, but wildly is everywhere present in creation. All right? Here's another thing the scriptures say, that it's in creation that we see his handiworks, that his divine nature, his eternal power can be clearly seen. So what does uh, Psalm 19 say? The heavens declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now just follow me on this. If I told you, it was so cool when I went by that maple tree and there on the side of that trunk was this bull. It was unbelievable. I have never seen it before. This burl grew into a bull. And, and it was shiny and it was lacquered. And all I had to do, I just had to cut it off. Here it is. Did you buy that? I don't think so. We see this and we go, oh, someone made it. We see a beautiful painting. Someone painted it. We see a sculpture. We don't say like Aaron, I don't know what happened. I just threw it in the fire. I'll jump the calf. No, we know somebody, they cast that. They made a mold for that. And that's why there's this beautiful sculpture. We, we, we don't look at a building or a, a, a bunch of skyscrapers and go, man, isn't it cool how these things just keep pushing out of the ground? No, we, we understand that. But it's really interesting that there are a lot of people who suppress this really clear understanding that the universe is pointing to a creator, to God himself. Stephen Hawking acknowledges that. He says, the odds against the universe, like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang, are enormous. I think they're clearly religious implications. Here's another quote he said, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. So if God's our Father, then we're loved, you're loved, and we belong. If he's the maker of all things, our creator, then our life is from him and we owe him our life. A couple things to think about as we bring it home. 
God could have never included the father metaphor. He could have just stuck with shepherd, king, ruler. There's so many. When God chose to use father, it reminds us that God is relational, that we were made for relationship. God has always existed in relationship to himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. And it's good to catch up with that. That God is relational and we were designed for relationship with him. There's a second implication that we should catch up with. If God created us and created this world, then this world that we live in is not just a chance random world and that my life isn't just meaningless nothingness that it does, I don't know where I came from, it just seems like a cosmic accident, it's this chance, it, 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 it's, just, it's just random that happened. No, if we believe God is the creator, then my life has meaning and my life has purpose. So Isaiah will speak to that very thing in Isaiah 43, verse seven. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were created for a purpose to honor and glorify God. Ephesians 2.10 says we are created in Christ for a purpose. For we are God's handiwork. That's you in Christ. You're his masterpiece. When's the last time you felt like that? Man, there's so many tapes. Do you realize that? There's so many messages play in our minds. We, we need to turn it up loud. God saying to us, you're a masterpiece. And I feel like I'm a mess. No, you're a masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God's prepared in advance for us to do. Our life has meaning and purpose. And our view of God needs to be robust enough to hold the intimacy of a father's love and the awesomeness of the creator of the universe. Isaiah puts the two together in Isaiah 40, 11 and 12. Notice the juxtaposition of the intimacy of the shepherd, here's the metaphor here, and then the awesome creator. He tends his flock like a shepherd, speaking of God. He gathers the lamb in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? A lot of us are drawn to the metaphor of father. I love that. I need that. I love that. I hang out with that. The danger is we turn God into our best bud and forget that he is so different and awesome and holy and set apart from us. He's so big. We've got to hold the two together. Cup your palm right now. Cup your palm. So if I had a measuring cup of water, how much water could your palm hold right now? An eighth of a cup? quarter cup? Some of you guys are saying, I got a big hand. I, I can do a cup. A cup. So again, using this figurative language of approximation to just help us see how big God is. The song, uh, the, Isaiah says, hey, right here, 71% of the earth's mass is water. 326, what is it? 326 million trillion gallons. Right here, he does that. The breadth of his hand, that's like this, nine inches for me. All, the, like the universe, the, the heavens, the skies, the galaxies, right here, it fits right here. 
all the dirt and the dust on the earth, just like that little basket maybe you carried down to the market yesterday, just right there in the basket. The mountains and the hills, ah, just on that little plate on the other side of the weights on the scale, it just slides in right there. That's how big and awesome our God is. It's good to remember that. Let me just tell you about the size of our universe because it's so staggering and to think about God being bigger outside of this, creating this. So let's use the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second as kind of a way to just see how big our universe is. So around the earth is 25,000 miles. Traveling at speed of light, it would take us seven and a half seconds, okay? A trip to the sun, 92 miles away. That's eight minutes. Pluto, poor Pluto, recently demoted, but our venerable city council has reinstalled Pluto. Isn't that great? 2,757 billion miles away. That'd take us four hours. The Milky Way, flying from one end to the other, 600,000 trillion miles, 100,000 light years. The astronomers and the physicists tell us just within the Big Dipper, you've got one million galaxies. And just this, this week, right? The Kepler Space Telescope brought back information. Hey, there's another 104 exoplanets, new planets that they've discovered. God is awesome. So a couple questions to take home. Do I find my belonging in him? my security, my identity? Or do I find it, and I'm looking for it in my marriage, and that's just not working out real good, and that's why there's such a big void right now. Do I find my belonging in my kids, and it's been so great, but they all have grown up, and they're no longer at home? Do I find my belonging with friends, but I've moved, and I don't have them anymore? Do I find my belonging in my career and my successes, but it's, it's struggling? Where do we find our belonging? Is our belonging in God as our Father. And do we understand that though everybody has been created by God, we are created for a unique relationship and the only way we experience that relationship is through the Son who wasn't protected, who wasn't given provision in his greatest hour of need so that Jesus hung on the cross and said, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? So that all that which separated you and me from God would fall on Christ that we could have a relationship and belong. Is God your father? Have you placed your faith in Christ, the one who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to the father but through me. That is a radically exclusive claim. Either he is who he said he is, or he's a, he's a lunatic, Jesus. The resurrection reminds us that he is who he said he is and did what he said he would do, make a way through his death, giving us life. There's a second question I'll leave you with. Do you like the fact that God is God or do you wish you were God? Do you embrace that God is God over your life or are you always fighting it, resisting it? Here's what I know. In my little petty bouts of anger, whether it's angry at home with my wonderful wife who doesn't deserve it, my kids, my dogs, 
some jerk driver on the Beltline or some policy in some governmental bureaucracy, whatever it is that gets me hacked off, what I know is the common thread is I'm wanting to be God and I get frustrated with the people that don't know that I'm God. Kind of reminds me of the story that Bob Thomas, he was the old kicker for the Chicago Bears. I hear him speak at a men's breakfast. And he talked about this time where he won the football game, the winning field goal at the end of the game to win the game. And the team's out for dinner. And he's just trying to get some butter for his dinner roll because all the linemen have taken all the butter. So he asked the waitress, can I get some butter, please? She, she forgets. There's a lot, of, a lot of things going on. He asks her again, can you please get some butter? She forgets again. Finally, he pulls her aside. She says, lady, do you know who I am? I'm Bob Thomas. I kicked the winning field goal. She said, you know who I am? I'm the lady who passes out the butter. Relax. <laughs> so I feel like there, there, there's a lot of it. This is it. Our heart are idol factories. And at the heart of the idol is ourselves. Do we want to be God? Are we glad that we're not God? Are we trying to control everything in our life? Or are we glad it's all in his control? My word, if he can handle the waters of this world right here, do you think he's big enough and strong enough and loving enough to take care of my life? Or do I keep pushing away? Do I think I know better? God help us to see him as a loving father, my maker. I owe my life to him. Together, let's grow to love him more. Let's pray. So Father God, thank you so much for telling us what you're like and who you are, who you've been, your faithfulness, about your grace, who we were, who we are, who we can be. I pray that you give faith to your people here listening to me now, listening at home now, to put their trust alone in your son, that they might become adopted into your family. Lord, we pray and confess that we want to be God of our lives and we keep making a mess of it. And so we turn away from that and we embrace that you are our good God. You are our good father. That's who you are. And that we are loved by you. May we live in that reality, find strength and fullness in that reality to serve you and others well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.